Well, we continue our series on the book of Acts this morning. After the uh, falling of the Spirit on the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, which we looked at last week, Peter goes and reports what happened there to the Jerusalem church. There's a brief update on the spread of the gospel to, to Antioch. And then Luke returns in Acts chapter 12, which was our text this morning, our New Testament lesson. He returns in Acts chapter 12 to the Jerusalem church which is where we'll pick up the narrative. And we'll make four points. They're there on the outline in the back of your bulletin. Uh, James, Peter, Herod, and the Word. James, Peter, Herod, the Word. So first, first James. So if you look at the text, it says, About this time, we're told that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, only, only two of them are mentioned here, and they're both apostles, right? James and Peter. Now, <clears throat> it's really hard, <clears throat> or it requires a little effort anyway, to keep all the Herods of this time straight. Right? This, is, this Herod is Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod who tried to kill all the male infants, right, in and around Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the infant Christ. This is his grandson. This Herod has another uncle named Herod Antipas. He's the one who tried Jesus in Luke's gospel. So there's three of them. So this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, believe it or not, was boyhood friends with two kids who became Roman emperors, Caligula and Claudius. So he seems to have called in some favors when his boyhood pals became emperors, and he was able to gain territory and expand his, the boundaries of his rule almost identical to the territory ruled by his grandfather before him. So these pre- the, the, the thing to see here is the previous Herods attacked Christ. This Herod is attacking the body of Christ, his disciples. The text says he laid violent hands on, which means he arrested and subsequently killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is James, who is one of the twelve. This is not James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, would later become the leader of the Jerusalem church. This is a different James. He's one of the twelve apostles. He's John's brother. So here we must recall the incident that we read in the gospel lesson. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, right? That's James and John's mother, comes up to Jesus with her sons, we're told. So they're in on this, right? This is not just an exuberant mom. She comes up with her sons. She kneels before Jesus, and she asks him for something. And Jesus says to her, what do you want? And you know what she says. She says, I want these two sons of mine to sit. It's an audacious request, really. I want them to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. She and her, her kids, they want glory and they want dominion and they want victory and they want it now. And Jesus says to her, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asks this question. What a sobering question, he asked this mother. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, that is the sons respond, and they say, yeah, 
we're able. At the time, it's like an astonishing lack of self-awareness. Sure. And he said to them, well, you will. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left, that's not mine to grant. That's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Right? Meaning it's an eschatological gift. Right? It's a gift to the overcomers in Revelation to sit down at my right hand and my throne. You get this from the language of prepared. Right? In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Come inherit the kingdom prepared for you by my Father from before the foundation of the world. And in Matthew 25, he's talking about the eternal kingdom dispensed after the final judgment. That's when you'll get to sit at my right hand and my left hand if my father so sees fit. But for now, Jesus asked the question, are you able to drink this cup? And the cup that Jesus drank, of course, was the cup of Calvary. Right? It was the cup of suffering. The cup of weakness. He was crucified in weakness, Paul says. It's the cup of death. And he says to James and John, you will drink my cup. Meaning, of course, not that they're going to die a vicarious death for the sins of the world. Only Christ's death does that. Right? But it does mean that they're going to enter into the depths of his passion. You will be blessed, Jesus is saying, as Peter puts it in his letter, to suffer for my namesake. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the slanderers. They'll have great heavenly reward. In in essence, Jesus is saying to them, you want to sit at my right hand, this is the way. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of martyrdom. Jesus says to them in Matthew 10, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses it, for my sake, will find it. This is the paradox of the kingdom. Do you want a place of kingdom rule and honor? You want glory and power and dominion? It comes in following the path that I trod, in drinking the cup that I drank. And James is going to drink that cup. And John, by the way, his brother, the brother of this James, he also drinks the cup. He drinks it in another form. He ends up in exile on Patmos for the word of God, where he writes the book of Revelation. And the other 11 apostles, they're going to drink as well. For according to tradition, they all die martyrs' deaths. So James, back to James, he's our concern here. He said he was able to drink the cup. He's arrested by Herod the king. He's killed with the sword. He does drink the cup. He's killed with the sword. That is, he's beheaded. It's an attempt by Herod to terrorize the church, right, by cutting off its leadership, by cutting its head off. And so here's the eyes we need to see this text with. James, who asks to sit at Christ's right hand, gets his request. He is now, absent his body, in heaven, with the martyrs, reigning with Christ. If we suffer with him, Paul says, then we shall reign with him. If we drink the cup, then we will sit down with him in glory. And James, 
is triumphant. He's victorious. He's awaiting full public vindication when it will come for all the martyrs and for the whole church precisely when it came for our Lord Jesus, namely at the resurrection. So Herod seems to have triumphed here. But we Christians look at this and we realize James the martyr is the victor. This is a story of the triumph of the word. For we conquer in being conquered. In losing his life, literally, right? Because Jesus meant that fundamentally literally. When he says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. The fundamental meaning of that text is not, if you practice a few acts of self-denial, you'll find spiritual fulfillment. It means, if you get killed for my sake, you'll gain eternal life. In losing his life, James has gained, along with Stephen, his crown. Right? It's a crown. The sons of Zebedee wanted a crown in this age. In this age, you get the crown of thorns. In the age to come, you get the crown of glory. So that's James. Secondly, Peter, the second apostle. Herod saw, he saw that the execution of James pleased the Jews. So he proceeds to arrest Peter. Surely planning to execute him as he had done to James. And notice we're told that this is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, follows the Passover immediately. So, it's, so notice this, it's the same time of year when a previous Herod was involved in Jesus' execution. So the, just the timing here of another Herod doing this at this time of year, that just the timing is foreboding. I mean, imagine James is killed. Peter is next in line. So this would be a time of terror for the Jerusalem church. And they take Peter and they put him in prison. This is the third time, if you're counting in the book of Acts, this is the third time Peter's in prison already. Right? Prison is sort of a natural home for the gospel. But that's a topic for another day. Peter is put in prison for the third time. And because he's already gained some notoriety for breaking out, having been divinely delivered the last time in chapter 5, he is heavily, excessively guarded. The text says four squads of soldiers. That's probably 16 soldiers total are attached to this one prisoner. It's a maximum security arrangement. Herod is intending, we're told, to bring Peter out to the people after the Passover. And there's little to no doubt that this would be a show trial ending in a public execution. But verse 5, Acts 12, verse 5, sounds a different note, right? Peter was kept in prison, and here's a very important but. But earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. The church is fighting, right? The church has only spiritual weapons. She doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood. So she doesn't use the carnal weapons of this age or this world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So she doesn't fight with swords or armies. She unleashes mightier forces. That's the point here. I wonder if we really believe this, that these are mightier forces. Heavenly forces. Right? We're heralding a kingdom which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So the church appeals to a higher authority, right? To a higher king, the one whose kingdom is above all, and before whom King Herod is doomed. He's a petty tyrant anyway. He's doomed and he's coming to nothing. So prayer then, prayer, petitioning God, along with the word, is the church's chief weapon. It's her chief political weapon. It's her chief response to her enemy's threats. Here, it's her only response. It's the only weapon Jesus used when he was on the cross. So the church makes, the text says, earnest prayer to God for Peter. The word for earnest is the same word used of Jesus in Gethsemane, where Luke tells us that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Right? And his sweat became like great drops of blood. So the church is praying for Peter, but it's desperate, fervent, focused prayer. Recall an imprisoned Paul. Right? Paul's in prison. He tells the Philippian church, I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Churches embody in what we read about in Hebrews 13. Remember those in prison as if in prison with them. So they call upon the sovereign God to bring to naught the threats of the kings of the earth. And the narrative continues and it tells us on the very night that Herod was to bring Peter out for the show trial. Peter is sleeping between two guards, bound with two chains, with two sentries before the door, guarding the whole prison. Now notice first here, at least the first thing that strikes me is, he's sleeping? I mean, some of us have trouble sleeping under optimal conditions. You know, like no anxiety, apparently. Like no sleep number bed. He's just chained between two soldiers in a prison, sleeping in heavenly peace, confident in the future. And then there's a heavenly visitation from the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. And this evokes evokes the scene of the great deliverance of imprisoned souls at the birth of our Lord, right? When an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Here an angel appears and stands next to him in the prison. And it says, a light shone in the cell. It's like a divinely provided nightlight. And the angel shakes Peter. Actually says it's, he, the angel struck him on the side. And wakes him up and tells him, get up quickly. And we hear this, right? This is Exodus language. It's leaving one's imprisoned bondage in haste. And the chains, we're told, evoking the enslaved Israelites, the chains fell off his hands. Surely, this scene right here in Acts 12 is the inspiration for Wesley's famous lines from our opening hymn that we just sang this morning, where he says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's Wesley's commentary on Acts chapter 12, our text. And at this point, the angel tells Peter, because he's disoriented, dress yourself and put on your sandals. It's kind of like, you know, you're going to do some things here too. And he, and he does so. He girds up his cloak and he follows the angel out. It's a picture, as Wesley grasped, of sovereign free grace. Peter is sleeping through his deliverance. The whole thing is an action of divine initiative and power. Even leaving the prison, even leaving the prison, he's half asleep. He says he didn't know that what was being done was real. He thought he was seeing a vision, like he was in the middle of some sort of dream. And they, they, go, they go right past the guards. They, 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 the gate leading the city opens by itself. They go out along the street. The angel departs. And then Peter comes to his senses. And he realizes the Lord has sent an angel and rescued him. Like Jacob at Bethel, we read of it from Genesis 28, right? He now realizes, now, the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Jacob had this dream of a ladder spanning heaven and earth, and with the angels of God ascending and descending on it, right? And in John's gospel, we're told that Jesus Christ is that ladder. He's the one who spans heaven and earth and on whom the angels ascend and descend. And Jesus sends his angels, we're told in the book of Hebrews, to render service for you who are to inherit salvation. So Peter, realizing finally this is not a dream, he heads to the house of one Mary, the mother of John Mark. Now, notice the text tells us many people are gathered together and praying. And notice then, this is the middle of the night. Which means they've been praying for Peter for days. He just happens to find a prayer meeting in progress? It's not six o'clock. Remember those in prison as if you were imprisoned with them. And then, then there's a somewhat, like, madcap scene at the house. Peter knocks at the outer gate. So the house has a courtyard. So, the, the, you know, Mary's house, Mary has some wealth. Her, she's got a house. It's got a courtyard. Outside the courtyard, there's a gate. Peter knocks at the outer gate. A servant girl named Rhoda comes out, recognizes his voice, forgets to open the gate. And she, you know, enjoys. She runs back and reports that Peter's outside. And the church, which has been praying for Peter for days, and whose prayers have now been answered beyond their wildest imagination, they say, you are out of your mind. (laughs) Which I love for a number of reasons. One, notice, they're not naive to believe just any report of the miraculous. You know, people, we tend to think in a sort of modern arrogance that ancient people were naive and gullible, and they just thought miracles were under every rock, and they were quick to believe these silly stories, right? And here their response is, you're nuts. And yet, we can critique them because they're slow, as we often are, to believe that God would actually hear their prayers and do above and beyond all that we would ask and think and answer our prayers. 
It's almost like we've been praying for days and days and days and hours and hours and hours, but we don't really expect anything to happen. And Rhoda keeps insisting, no, he's out there. And they keep saying, no, it's his angel. <laughs> they don't even go, nobody even goes to look. Peter's out there, he's knocking. It's all a bit zany and chaotic. And finally they let him in. And they saw him and they're astonished. Astonished that their prayers were heard. God hears your prayers. Your outrageous, outlandish prayers. God hears them and he answers them. And so Peter has to calm them down. And then he describes how the Lord brought him out of the prison. So here's what I want you to see. After James's martyrdom, this is the second triumph in the text. Either way, by martyrdom or by escaping martyrdom, Christ and his saints reign victorious. That's the point of this narrative. You can bet that the church prayed earnestly for James when he was arrested. But he wasn't delivered from violent death for Christ's sake. Peter, who they also prayed for, was. How do we sort this out? We don't. It's all part of God's inscrutable providence in this age. And if you try and tease this out, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Besides, we don't need to. Hebrews 11 tells us that the church has always seen both these kinds of things as triumphs of faith. If you read Hebrews 11, it says that some, through faith, conquered kingdoms, right? They stopped the mouths of lions. They escaped the edge of the sword. They put foreign armies to flight. And some were tortured. Right? Some refused to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Right? So triumph, even among the Old Testament saints, has always been seen as ambiguous. Sometimes it's escaping the sword like Peter does. Sometimes it's receiving the sword like James does. And of course, Jesus comes... And he defines triumph as exclusively cruciform for his disciples in this age. Remember this. Peter, marvelously delivered here, will even more marvelously follow James as a martyr under Nero in the mid-60s, where he will be crucified upside down. All deliverances in history are temporary deliverances. (laughs) Victory in martyrdom, victory in temporary deliverance from martyrdom. We celebrate them both. Right? For Christ and his kingdom are what is invincible. And he does and he shall, he does and he shall rule over all. And he works all things together for our good. So third, briefly then, Herod. Herod. He's in a dispute with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they ask for peace from him because they need food from his country, meaning from Galilee. So he visits, he dresses in his robes, he gives an oration. The people shout, the voice of a God and not a man. The church has prayed to God, and this crowd here is hailing Herod as a God. We're told an angel of the Lord struck him down. Ironically, the same word used when the angel struck Peter and raised him up. Here he strikes Herod down and he dies because he didn't give God the glory. 
Now, by the way, if you think this is a fantastic story, it's interesting. The first century Jewish historian Josephus records Herod's death at this place, you know, at the time of this oration, at this place and at this time, in roughly the same manner. Right? He doesn't describe, describe it exactly the same. The details differ. But the substance is the same. Like, everybody knew Herod went and gave this oration, and then they died quickly right afterwards. As the psalmist says, put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in princes. Or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. This is the third victory in the text. First the martyrdom, then the deliverance, then the death of this petty persecuting tyrant. The church will outlast, and the church will indeed bury all of her persecutors. For the gates of hell will not prevail against her. John Stott says here, he says, We we started this passage with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. The text ends with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. And that brings me to my last point. All this to really get to verse 24. This is really what I want you to see is verse 24, the word. But in the teeth of all this, the text says, I love this. The word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. As Adam was supposed to increase and multiply and fill the earth... Now, through the gospel, the word increases and multiplies and fills the earth, extending Christ's dominion. So what we have in the text are three triumphs of the word of God. Three triumphs of the word of God. In martyrdom, suffering for the word is a triumph. In deliverance, being saved by the word is a triumph. And in the toppling of a tyrant, our enemies being silenced is a triumph by the word. Because this is the word empowered by the spirit of the ascended Christ. And thus, this word cannot be stopped or thwarted or defeated. I love Luther says about the Reformation, he says, they asked him about the success of the Reformation. And Luther said, well, I didn't do anything. I just preached the word and the word did the rest while I was sleeping. I preached the word, I went to sleep. And then the word converted Europe. Right Now, notice this in this passage. The passage ends with the word of God increased and multiplied. The church actually, besides prayer, does nothing in the text. Its leader gets killed. They arrest another leader. They pray. He gets saved. And a tyrant gets struck down. But there's no program. Right? There's no strategy. There's there's no actual human visible action or contribution. The word just does what the word does. Right? He doesn't doesn't say the church triumphed, although it does. He says the word triumphed. This word cannot be, this is the thing that can't be stopped or thwarted, right? From prison, bound with chains as a criminal, Paul writes what? But the word of God cannot be chained. Right? The, the triumph of the gospel doesn't even depend on your liberty, Paul says. I'm in prison, and the word is doing just fine. That word, then, above all earthly powers, 
No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.